Welcome to the Texas Horn Podcast. I am your host, Chris Locke, and the editor-in-chief of the Texas Horn. And I'm joined today by our content editor, Charles Jackson-Paul, and um, our copy editor, Daniel Villalva, our associate editor, Sterling Mosley, and our managing editor, Grace Somerville. Today, we're going to be talking about um, Israel. Um, does it have a right to defend itself? Um, are we seeing a rise in anti-Semitism? We're going to be talking about Sam Sampson's piece on individualism. Is it conservative or is it not conservative? Um, we're going to be talking about the January 6th commission, um, why are Republicans rejecting it? And um, we'll be talking about Abbott banning mass requirements on state property and uh, a new story over UT doing a commencement walkout over the ice of Texas zone. So let's start with Israel. Um, Jackson wrote a piece this past Thursday um, uh, talking about the disinformation coming out over the Israel-Palestine um, conflict. And um, Sterling, would you like to give your opinion on the piece, what you thought of it, any comments, any disagreements? Yeah, definitely. First off, I, I thought it was very thorough and I applaud Jackson for the great work that he did with forging that and making that into a very, you know, successful and, and, and informative piece. Um, I think that overall, the conflict that we're seeing in Israel um, is complicated and one that spans um, at least a century, if not longer. Um, I, my initial view is that the conflict began with uh, the continual uh promises made by the British uh, with the Balfour Declaration and with the White Papers in the 1930s and 1940s that eventually led to a scenario where Jews and Arabs were in this shared state, Palestine, the mandated Palestine. And when the British left in 1948, they left without leaving any administrative systems. They left quickly. Um, and that has basically devolved over these past decades into conflict after conflict after conflict. And this is yet another showcase um, of how Israel and Palestine just are in a scenario where they cannot get along. Um, and I do think that Israel, you know, definitely does have a right to defend itself, particularly when Hamas is firing missiles against civilian targets in Israel and ultimately shooting about 300 to 400 rockets into Gaza itself. Uh, and I think that the civilian casualties that we are seeing within the Gaza Strip and within Israel um, are squarely on Hamas simply because they're using civilians as human shields um, and they are targeting civilians. So I think that the Israeli, mil Israeli military is trying their best to target Hamas leadership, but doing so to ensure that civilian casualties are limited by, you know, calling for, um, by basically calling ahead and making sure that, that people are getting out of buildings and that, that the area is safe before they, you know, take out certain infrastructure. So I think that it's a very complicated issue and that overall the, the, uh, the IDF is, is doing their best to try to limit civilian casualties. Jackson, what do you think? So first, thank you for your um, compliments to my article. Um, I, a lot of research went into that, so I appreciate that. It was, um, um, I appreciate that you could tell. Also, um, you say um, that the Israel-Palestinian thing is a very complicated issue. I feel like um, it's a very good point that it is complicated. Um, but 
I think you're right in like looking at the British as really where this began because they did kind of mess things up by leaving in 1947, 1948 before things were, you know, fully set up. And then um, the, um, if you look at, you're right that like Israel has kind of a difficult situation with Hamas launching so many rockets into Israel that like on the one hand, you want to do airstrikes against Hamas, but on the other hand, you want to minimize um, civilian casualties on the Palestinian side, at least, or you want to minimize civilian casualties even in Gaza. So that's why Israel will, for instance, call ahead and warn people they're going to bomb buildings. For example, you heard about um, on Saturday, May 22nd, I believe it was, or sorry, no, the week before that, um, the Associated Press were in a building in Gaza and they were warned like an hour before it was struck. So they were able to evacuate and get all their stuff out before it was bombed. So certainly the IDF is doing their best to minimize civilian casualties. But even when they do, people are still getting caught up because Hamas, by using schools, by like using civilian areas to launch the rockets, they're essentially trying to guarantee that civilians will die so that they can go to the West and be like, oh, look at Israel. They're killing all these civilians. You must support us. But the fact is, a lot of people talk about like um, freeing Palestinians and I'll be Palestinians and I'll be the first to admit that like being Palestinian right now, it's like you do like it's not very fun. Like there are a lot of problems. But the fact is the biggest barrier to a free Palestine to a Palestinian state in like the Gaza Strip and or the West Bank isn't Israel. It's Hamas. So if we can um, convince like people of the Gaza Strip to rise up against Hamas to form a democratic free Gaza Strip, then that is, I think, how we get to a viable peace between Israel and Palestine, where it would almost certainly be a two-state solution with them at least having Gaza, if not more autonomy within the West Bank. But if we can get Hamas out of the way, if we can kind of stop the hatred, the anti-Semitism that is driving these Palestinian um, Palestinians support Hamas, then that is how I think we end conflicts like this once and for all. Yeah, Jackson, I just want to sort of comment on that. And I think that a lot of the things that that the Palestinians are dealing with, particularly, you know, in the West Bank as well, and and as to why this is occurring now, why this conflict is happening now, you know, there are reasonings on both sides in in the Israeli government and in the Palestinian government. Uh, In the Palestinian government, their last election was nearly a decade and a half ago. Um, 14 years ago, and they had their last election. They were going to have an election late April, um, but the Palestinian Authority decided to, you know, decided to delay that election because they feared that Hamas was going to win, win, you know, the majority in, in their in their government institution. Um, so basically, the Palestinian Authority is using this conflict to ensure that they can win in future elections. And the same thing on the Israeli side. Netanyahu, who has been, I think this is like his fourth election now in the past two years, is trying to form a government. And there's an incentive to create conflict for Netanyahu because uh, conflict leads to solidarity. Solidarity leads to a strong central government that he can you know, forge and, and actually create one instead of having to go to another election. So I think it's important to point out why this is happening now um, versus in other scenarios. And I think that as well, uh, a piece of this has to do with US aid going to the Palestinian Authority and thus uh, pretty much an incentive for individuals within Hamas to, to take more violent action against Israelis um, because 
part of that aid goes to uh, families that that end up dying in Hamas, and and so there is another part of that with with U.S. policy. See, I'm actually going to have to uh, disagree with you a little bit there on your analysis of um, the politics politics and like what Netanyahu and what the FPA are thinking because the situation where like now the government is stable has been around for a while like um Israel hasn't really they've had I think what four elections over the past few years and I think they're heading towards a fifth and as for the um, PA they've basically been like very afraid that the relative moderates like moderates i guess because they're really not that moderate but they're more moderate than hamas are constantly in fear that they'll lose an election to hamas and then it'll all be over for them but now that that's been the situation on both sides for a while so i don't think that like both governments being unstable is the primary explanation for what's happening now as opposed to say a year ago i think that the reason there are political factors that are causing it to happen now instead of like a few months or a few years ago and the reason is that america is seen as weak um the previous administration wasn't exactly known for um, supporting for, for like being stopped on Iran. It wasn't exactly known for being stopped on terrorism. And it was more isolationist than most um, Republicans administrations were. But it wasn't actually but like no, like it had a very clear anti-Iran, for instance, it withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. So there was no issue of people thinking, oh, what if it's soft on the Israel issue? It's like, no, it's going to support Israel. Whereas the Biden administration, no one kind of knew where it stood. It was like, is it going to support Israel or is it going to um, kind of hedge and be like, oh, both sides are bad, blah, blah, blah. Um, and to its credit, I think the Biden administration has handled this crisis as about as well as it could. Like it's supporting Israel. It's helping Israel all the while trying to negotiate a ceasefire so that this pointless violence can be stopped. So I think the Biden administration did pass the test, but both sides were kind of testing America to see what now that things are new, now that we're in a new administration, kind of a post-COVID world, what is America going to do in the Middle East? So that I think was I think that combined with the pre-existing, as you noted, the instability of the government, is what explains why it's happening uh, now. You were at Sterling. Um, do you think uh, it's more of a test and not really um, a, something cynical on Netanyahu's part? Well, I, I think that Jackson put it quite well, um, and I, I do think that it's just a combination of factors that one, the electoral politics side, but also the U.S. policy side, because, you know, the prior administration really did show uh, and create a message of force and 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 really supported Israel. And I think that's sort of the why I, I, I do agree that the Biden administration did handle this relatively well in that the initial round of the U.N. Um, Security Council you know, they voted against the ceasefire initially. Um, I do sort of think that uh, I don't necessarily agree with that call. I think that they should have voted for a ceasefire um, so that that way there'd be unanimous uh, global condemnation on first for, for the violence on both sides. Um, but I do think that, that that partially has to do with the U.S. sort of throwing our weight around and saying that, no, we want to take credit for this. Uh, let's not have the UN Security Council, you know, get credit for this. Let's have our U.S. diplomats go in and create the ceasefire rather than the UN. So I think that that's partially um, what the U.S. is doing here uh, when it comes to a ceasefire. But I am glad that a ceasefire is coming about. Um, 
And I think that I think that Jackson put it well that this is sort of a combination of factors, and particularly uh, how the U.S. handles itself in the Middle East. I'm going to like going back to the Security Council resolution. I think that um, the U.S. was right, and I am very proud of the uh, Biden administration for doing this. But I think that U.S. is right to use our veto power to get that from happening. Because if you look over the past few years at um, Security um, Council like condemnations of various countries. Like the number one country is Israel, like more than North Korea, more than China, more than Russia, more than Iran. It's is Israel is like the single most like country that has like resolutions targeted against it. And that's not just true on the Security Council. It's true like on almost the other councils, everything from the I think uh, like councils focusing on like um, women's issues and gender rights to the General Assembly. You always like the num- almost invariably the number one country that's condemned is Israel. And so the factors that go into that are like complicated like it isn't just blatant anti-semitism there are other like reasons for that but even so like the security this particular security council resolution was much too um condemn condemnatory i guess of israel for i think the us to support it so i'm but i'm glad we are getting to the point where because everyone wants to see everyone except hamas wants a ceasefire they're the only ones who benefit from rockets i mean you made the argument that the israeli government benefits from having an issue to unite everyone but they've already probably gotten all the benefit out of that that they're going to get so most of the rest of the world wants a ceasefire so i'm glad we're moving um in that direction but i do think that the security council resolution was like not the direction to move and that the u.s and the Biden administration were um it wasn't just so that we could broker the ceasefire because really egypt is the country that's taken going to take most of the credit for brokering the ceasefire but the security resolution council resolution was the wrong way to go so moving on to the next question are we seeing a rise in anti-semitism because of these attacks sterling yeah, I mean, I think the the answer is pretty unequivocally yes. Um, I don't think that you can say, you know, we've been seeing from Democrats in recent days that there's been a rise of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, but frankly, I've only really seen anti-Semitism. Um, if you show me cases of, of increased Islamophobia in the U.S., um, you know, I'll be sure to change my tune. But I think that overall, because there have been the the shift in narrative towards a more anti-Israel one on the left, that that has contributed to a more um, anti-Israel or, or anti-Semitic um, uh, path for for many or for some on the left. Um, and I think that that is reinforced by the idea that uh, the effort for a free Palestine is in the eyes of, of leftists, the narrative goes hand in hand with uh, oppressed groups, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement um, and other groups of that nature that basically, you know, you create a global solidarity movement uh, as, an oppressed, uh, as an oppressed class against the oppressor. Um, and in this case, they see Israel as the oppressor and the Palestinians as the oppressed. So this leads to, to anti-Semitism here in the U.S. As, Palestinians um, and probably other Arab groups uh, become more and more negative towards Israelis and, and Jews in the U.S. Jackson, um, yeah, I agree with that. That um, I especially agree that um, you're, it's interesting to know how Palestine, how like the Free Palestine movement, is kind of tied to this intersectional idea of um, of like BLM, um, 
like fighting for like women women's rights, um, things like that. Like this whole intersectional idea of the left, um, Palestinians have their place as an oppressed group, and. Um, this is very interesting because most like groups that are oppressed around the world don't really have a place there. For instance, the Kurds, um, the largest ethnic group in the world without their own state, they're in a very similar situation to the Palestinians except worse because where at least Israel, when they're like fighting terrorism and such, they try and um, avoid killing unneedless Palestinian um, civilians. Whenever um, countries like, say, Turkey are fighting um, Kurdish terrorists, because there are definitely Kurdish terrorists, they don't like minimize Kurdish casualties at all. They just like blatantly oppress them and ditto in Syria and ditto in Iraq. Actually, less so in Iraq recently. But even so, their uh, groups like the Kurds are much more oppressed in Myanmar. Um, ethnic minorities are oppressed. Almost all of Africa, you can find a cut. Most countries in Africa are consist of more than one tribe. And whenever that's true, you'll usually find that one tribe is a, is like kind of on top in the same way that like you might say that um, Jewish people to a lesser extent than almost anywhere else than like in parts of Africa, but it's still somewhat similar to how the left is saying it's happening in Israel. But you have the one tribe on top and the other ethnic minorities being oppressed. And there are, of course, groups who speak out on this, but it's not a cause among the left. Like no one, like no one's going to go on social media and talk about free Kurdistan unless you're like some weird foreign policy wonk and then everyone's going to look at you weirdly. So that raises the question, why free Palestine specifically? Like why this one group of people? And I think that that's because the enemy in the Free Palestine story is, of course, the Jews, which unfortunately in Western history, um, Jewish people have been blamed for everything from like the Black Death, which they were blamed for in the Middle Ages, to um, financial crises when they were supposedly manipulating markets. So because like they're not, so because like there's this natural um, hatred for them, unfortunately, in the West, when you see, like, when you can feel super woke and feel like, oh, I'm supporting, like, this ethnic group, again, that's been oppressed, it is, it does allow you to vent your um, secret anti-Semitic feelings, which is why, and, like, and not everyone on the left, not even most people on the left are anti-Semitic, those are, I think, are using this anti-Palestine movement as an excuse to vent it, which is why we've seen this unfortunate rise in anti-Semitism. So you think there's um, there's some anti-Semitism uh, among like Palestinians, um, among the oppressed, um, but um, those on the left see it as more of a helping the oppressed um, kind of situation. Well, no, because if like these progressives, I mean, I'm not saying I don't care about helping oppressed people, but on the scale of oppression, there are ethnic groups that are much more oppressed than the yeah. Palestinians, like the Kurds, for example, or the uh, Uyghurs in China or in Myanmar, um, where they've had the genocide against the against like ethnic minorities um there like in fact it's very similar where like you have like a buddhist government in miramar or an atheist government in china oppressing muslims for their faith and for their ethnicity which is what the left is saying is happening in israel so my question is if you care about these oppressed groups so much why are you specifically speaking up about palestine and not about all the others so they might say oh it's they might say they might believe it's about helping the oppressed but I'm not sure that's entirely true. I think there are other cultural factors that are happening there. Yes, but it could also be ignorance of the other oppressed groups out there. And um, I mean, just because some some groups are more oppressed than you doesn't mean that you don't have some form of oppression against you. Um, what do you have to say to that? No, you're totally right. Like, I'm not saying that Palestinians like aren't at all oppressed or that like it's just super peachy. And they themselves are like 
like they can speak out in favor of like human rights and people in the West should like support that. Like there are Israel has and continues to make mistakes and those mistakes should be called out. But the fact is, is that like there is a cultural reason why Palestine in particular is what people focus on. Like there's a reason why we, why like these advocacy groups, so many more focus on say Palestine than like the plight of the Kurds. So if like, I mean, there are so many areas that, like, should, you would think that they would draw awareness to, like, people in the West who aren't necessarily oppressed themselves, but are, want to fight oppression globally. So I think that the reason it's going to, pal- so much of the energy isn't, is directed to Palestine isn't necessarily blatantly anti-Semitic, but it does have to do with, like, um, the way that Jews and Israel are re- viewed and are related to Western history and culture. Well, I guess I think it, I'm not saying, to... oh, if you support Palestine, you're anti-Semitic or anything like, like that. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, but I think it's also how it's portrayed in the media. I mean, like Hamas, for example, um, sending kids to soldiers and uh, there's just, it's, it's bad optics. Um, and, you know, it, it becomes portrayed as uh, there's Israel oppressing the Palestine, the Palestinians, and you don't really see any, you know, media images of, of the Kurds, well, maybe every once in a while, uh, being oppressed, but um, I'd say it's it's more often um, the Palestinian children or something, and um, it's easier for the left to um, to to hold them as an oppressed group and um, want them to be free. Yeah, and then I just wanted to add something. I, I think I agree with Chris on this one. I think that uh, a lot of people on the left are you know viewing this from an anti-semitic angle they're viewing this you know from you know a generally a general empathetic viewpoint of wanting to help palestinians right um and i i think that when jackson sort of talked about how other groups you know why not care about other groups i think that people really have cared about other groups. It's just what's sort of trendy in the moment because yeah. we're all caring about Pal- Palestine and Israel right now, because why it's in the news. Um, when Trump put out of Syria um, last year, two years ago, um, oh, any, any, everything that, that, that people talked about was the Kurds that we were betraying the Kurds that, that, you know, what, what are we going to do about the Kurds and, and, and you know, fearing a genocide uh, by the Turks um, against against uh, the Kurdish people. I think that while while leftists sort of continually uh, are aware of these minority groups and and these you know oppressed groups, um, I think that it really is what's trendy and what's sort of. Uh, known in the moment that that sort of determines where they put their support behind and uh, where they sort of fix their messaging to get a certain narrative. Oh, I agree with you that most people who are supporting Palestine now are supporting it because it's like the hot social button issue of the day and they like generally want to help oppress people. I guess it's, um, but my point was more that the people like why it's like why this narrative in particular has caught on so much because I mean, yes, people were worrying about the Kurds, but it like back in 2018, but it didn't penetrate into the popular culture and wasn't talked about to the same extent that um, the Palestinians are today. It was just more thing that like people who are interested in politics already kind of talk about. So I guess my point is, isn't that, individual people are specifically thinking, oh, yes, I'm going to care so much about the Palestinians because I'm secretly anti-Semitic or anything like that, is that like natural subconscious biases drive people to naturally sympathize more with the Palestinians 
than they were if their oppressors weren't Jewish. It's what Jonah Goldberg, um, a guy who wrote about this called structural anti-Semitism, which compared to structural racism, it's like, it's not that anyone specific is saying, oh, I'm going to be anti-Semitic, but because people were anti-Semitic in the past and like that those structures are still carrying on. And that's why when there is an opportunity to blame like um, the Jews for something going wrong, that's like, that's something that the systems are going to be set up so that more people are going to take, but it isn't, usually a case of anyone specifically saying it's you're right it's usually just a specific people case of people like being trendy and trying to care about like the issue that's people are caring about now okay um we have to move on to the next topic um uh so sam samson wrote a piece last thursday as well about individualism and about stephen crowder um uh, calling the Pope a communist for condemning individualism um, and say, and Sam said that individualism is not conservative. Uh, Grace, do you have any opinions on that? Yeah, I definitely agree with Sam. I really liked what he had to say in his article. And I also really liked what he had to say in the conserving conservatism podcast. Um, so yes, I agree with him. I do not think individualism is conservative because when I think individualism, I think, well, first of all, it falls more under libertarianism if we had to put it under something. Because when you think of individualism, you think self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-gratifying, self-serving, and not that libertarians don't serve people. Of course they do, but it definitely falls more under libertarianism. Whereas conservatism at its core, it's more about conserving, preserving the moral virtues and morality of humankind, mankind. And with that comes serving others. Jackson, any comments on that? Yeah. So I think that um, Sam, like obviously um, very smart guy, but I think he sometimes confuses individualism with an atomization. Individualism is properly understood something that's not only good, but is necessary for any true community. But um, too often that becomes like atomization where um, you just become really divided from everyone. And so the difference is I'd explain it like this. So um, at, there are like kind of three stages of development you can be at. You can be at dependence, independence, or interdependence. And so, um, independence like the bottom stage is where you're completely dependent on um is where you're completely dependent on everyone else you have no like identity then you get to the point where your individualism where you like i think like i'm aware that i am um i am aware that like i am a human being like i am aware of my own thoughts and i take kind of taking control of myself and then beyond that there's a stage of interdependence where like now that you're an individual you who like is capable of like knowing right and wrong and is capable of thinking you use that to consciously engage with other people both supporting them and being supported by them on a deeper level than you were on the dependent phase but in order to truly be part of the community you have to like control your you have to be aware of yourself you have to know yourself and you have to realize that not only yourself but everyone else is a human is like an individual who should have happiness who god desires to have happiness and um have Self-actualization actualization sound has been misused, but in some ways, yes. So that's, I think, like something that he confuses. Yeah, um, I, I do think um, what he's really referring to is the hyper-individualism of, uh, that Tocqueville talks about, um, 
of um, having no ties to anyone and, and just be focused on your own like career, for example, or just your, your own interests and uh, not that of the community um, or, or those you're, you're friends with. Um, and I that think that's obviously a, a huge problem, but I think individualism as a whole um, isn't really something that you could condemn as not being conservative. Um, I think uh, it's pretty conservative to say that each individual has um, inherent dignity and uh, God-given rights that, um, that, that, yeah, that, and um, I, I don't think you can get around that. Um, but um, yeah, I do, I do think there's a problem with saying all, all of individualism is, um, is not only not conservative, but also really bad. Um, I mean, I think you're right that um, Sam was thinking more of like the um, hyper atomization that Torquil was talking about. But the problem yeah. is like he doesn't draw like a distinction between them because like, yeah. Um, and so that's something that I wish I'd seen in the piece. But that's kind of like where the distinction is and like what its nature is, is I think like a big debate within conservatives. But on the other hand, we do need to keep like up the culture of like a strong individualism or else we risk becoming collectivists like the left where we think of people not as ends in themselves but merely as um things to be sacrificed for the higher good whether the higher good be um family community or the nation right or seeing um or, or seeing ours like for example having collective rights instead of individual rights like it that's not a particularly conservative um a thing to have um so that's another problem that you'd have to look out for. Um, anyone else have any opinions on that? Daniel? So yeah, um, uh, just to piggyback off what everybody said here, um, uh, you know, there is, I think conservatism can grab a little bit of both of, you know, individualism and collectivism because um, it does, um, because there is an old adage that says it, it takes a village to raise a child and that, you know, tradition, which where communities come together is the glue that holds society together. And, um, and collect uh, communities come together through traditions and those traditions get passed down um in not in a um, i don't i wouldn't want to say a conservative manner but um traditionalism aligns more with conservatism uh, but at the same time i also think that you know like you said chris um everybody every individual has inherent dignity and god-given rights um but as conservatives i think we um both um both alternatives um, offer their extremes, right? Um, the hyper-individualism that Steven Crowder's proposing versus the hyper-collectivism that is common among communist countries. We have to, um, we have to avoid both. And so, um, you know, because the individualism that um, Sam Sampson elaborated on um, in his article, it, it ties to a, a not only liberalism, but it also ties to Freemasonry, where man is at the center of everything um, that God creates. Um, so we also have to make a distinction there. So um, for conservatism to truly thrive, it has to take a little bit of both, but it should not embrace some either extreme. Yeah, and I think um, the solution is um, the government protecting individual rights and individuals um, being responsible to their community and having communal obligations. I think that would be ideal for conservatives. Anyone else have a opinion? 
Okay, let's uh, move on to the January 6th commission. Do we need it? Uh, is it necessary? Is it as useless as the 9-11 commission was? Um, and uh, why are Republicans rejecting it? Jackson, do you want to start? Uh, certainly. So I think that on the idea of a January 6th commission, I'm somewhat like, I wouldn't call myself neutral on it, but I think that like after weighing like the potential harm that's going to come for and potential good, they more or less cancel each other out. On the one hand, I do think that like the um, attack on the Capitol or the Capitol riot was um, not good for our country and that it's not the existential threat that people sometimes make it out to be since I don't think there was ever a real danger of America permanently falling, but it is like a symptom of like our political degeneracy that people thought that like that was an okay way of dealing with their um, political grievances. So I think that if there was a, a concerted effort to get more information on it, that'd probably be a good thing. And I think this commission is, if nothing else, likely to uncover facts about it. But on the other hand, I doubt the commission will really be effective in doing that, partially because of the, its inherently partisan nature. It will likely fall um, to some of the same problems that the 9-11 commission did, where it was each party trying to push their partisan agenda. Meanwhile, if Congress was really serious about investigating um, what happened, then there was no need for a commission. It could have um, created a joint committee or something, which would have had all the subpoena power, all this um power to investigate. In fact, I would prefer that because if there was a joint commission, you have Congress people who are accountable to someone, namely the voters. So they'd feel the need to, oh, do a good job on this, or it might hurt you in the next election. But they didn't because no one wants to be accountable for this commission if it fails. And because no one's accountable for it, if it fails to do anything, it's likely going to um, fail to make any significant discoveries that we don't know already and basically comes down to a waste of taxpayer money that might find something mildly interesting but won't really uncover any true facts. Sterling, any comments? Yeah. Um, you know, in a perfect world, I, I, in a perfect world, I'd be in favor of the January 6th Commission because I think that there are some benefits that can be uh, taken from an investigation as to what happened and what caused it, and and particularly when it comes to security concerns, um, I think that the 9/11 Commission, while partisan in nature, did bring about valid and necessary security concerns that allowed for future terrorist attacks to not take place. Um, for instance, um, through their investigation, it found that the FBI, the CIA, um, and other agencies were not communicating amongst themselves and yeah. that changed after the 9-11 commission. Um, so I think that if a January 6th commission were to come about, I think that focusing in on the security failures would probably be the best um, for the country to ensure that something like this does not happen again. Um, but at the same time, you know, this isn't a perfect world. It's going to get partisan. Um, and as to why Republicans are are rejecting it, one, it is partisan. One, this isn't gonna if if the January sixth commission continues, it is not gonna look good for the Republican Party come to the the, the midterms. Um, and two, the second reason why they're sort of rejecting it is because it's just so broad, um, and because if they allow, if Republicans allow for such a broad uh, mandate with this commission. Um, 
instead of focusing in on the security concerns and on what's important. Um, Democrats are simply going to make this a broad issue and going to blame multiple Republicans in leadership and uh, the former president um, for the actions that they took on the day or the lack of actions um, and, you know, make this into a partisan issue so that they continue to hold the House uh, and the Senate come 2022. So I think that that is one of the main reasons why Republicans are rejecting in why Democrats are pushing for it so much. Uh, here's a follow-up question: Should republic should Republicans reject it? Because um, you know Democrats be playing a bunch of ads during the 2022 election saying Republicans um, rejected this because they they don't want to to see what will be uncovered. Uh, it'll be condemning of uh, Trump, and um, it'll look really bad. And um, they don't care about our democracy. Do you think it would be? Um, do you think it's politically stupid to reject the commission? It's a tough question um, because on one hand, if they, well, because if you look at the current state of the Republican Party, right, it's a party of Trump, okay, and most likely President Trump is going to rerun again in 2024, and if they decide to, to pursue the January 6th commission, it will pretty much turn into a rejection of the former president and, and a more turn towards um, new leadership because it's going to cement within the minds of the American people that, are, that the Republican Party um, is, you know, willing to uh, apologize for potential th faults that they may have done um, and, and turn uh, to, to the future rather than looking more towards the past. But if they reject it, um, you know, they'll likely will be better in the 2022 midterms, but I don't know how well they will do in the 2024 race um, because they'll likely run Trump again. And given how, given how Republicans barely won in 2016 with, with President Trump and, and then lost in 2020, uh, I don't know how well he's going to fare in 2024. Um, so I think that the Republican Party is sort of at a tipping point here on what they want to decide, and it's looking more and more like they are willing to stick more with the past rather than look, rather than looking for, for more future leaders for the party. Jackson, any comments? Um, yeah, I think that you're right in talking about like how like I agree most of what you're talking about, like um, the party of Trump. There's just one um, thing I'd like to add to your um, analysis, I guess. And that's that I think you might slightly overstate the effect that January 6th will have in 2022, because from an electoral standpoint, January 6th couldn't have happened at a better time for Republicans because like we just finished up the last of these um, elections of the 2020 cycle with the uh, Georgia runoff, which obviously was a complete disaster for the Republican Party, but would have been much more of a disaster if January 6th had happened on, say, January 3rd. But um, by 2022, I think most people will kind of have shrugged and been like, eh, it was a long time ago. And that's what we've already begun to see among Republicans. Like uh, after um, January 6th, a lot of um, Trump loyalists kind of jumped ship. Like um, I know Betsy DeVos jumped ship. Um, Lindsey Graham really came out hard against him. He's going like, this ride's over. And then in a few months, everyone's kind of back to me like, oh yeah, it was bad, but you know, Trump being Trump. So, and that is what you noted when you saying people are kind of moving more towards Trump and the parties are kind of moving more towards the past. So I think as time goes on, not just Republicans, but voters in general will 
be more apathetic about this January 6th so that by 2022 won't be a major factor in the um, election one way or the other. So as to whether Republicans should inject the commission, it really doesn't matter because no one's going to care about the time it could have mattered. Yeah, well, I think that if the January 6th commission doesn't take place, January 6th is not going to matter for the midterms. But if it does, if they do pursue it, it's going to be dragged through the mud for months and months, and it will matter for the midterms. Um, and I think that that is something that Republicans need to worry about, and it is something that they are worrying about. Um, but again, like I said, in a perfect world, if January 6th, if the January 6th commission did take place, um, I think that the Republicans could spin it in such a way that they are, you know, if they spin it in a way where they reject President Trump and turn towards new leaders, they could potentially do very well in the 2022 midterms and and do very well in 2024. But because they're not pursuing that avenue, um, they'll likely still do well in 2022. But I, I have doubts for 2024. That's that's all I'm really saying is is uh, I do not know how competitive President Trump will be in the next election cycle versus a new Republican. Oh, well, I mean, if Trump runs, then I guess January 6th might get more um, energy um, kicked into it. But then Trump brings his own sort of um, benefits and problems to the party. I think that, like you're saying, if the commission does happen, people will kind of be kept in the public um, mind. So it might be more of a threat in 2022. Ultimately, it might become something like the Mueller report where, like, pub- where Democrats are like, oh, yes, the commission will reveal that January 6th was secretly led by Vladimir Putin and it was totally going to work. It had been planned like three months in advance or something like that. If they start saying something like that and pitting their hopes on the January 6th commission to do that, then if and when it doesn't conflate mm-hmm. or if and when it doesn't like support their views then people are just going to be like more tired of it so if the democrats treat this like the Mueller report and constantly like constantly talk about the commission and constantly mm-hmm. talk about all the good things it's going to find for them that i think is the best way to make everyone who's not like a hardened um liberal sick and tired of this by 2022 and people will yeah. like vote um red just to not hear about it again yeah, that's a really that's a really good point, Jackson. If they if they drag it for too long, it'll backfire on them. Um, that's a really good point. Any other comments? Okay, uh, next topic. Um, what do you think of Abbott banning uh, mass requirements on state property? Um, is this long overdue? Um, have the media reacted uh, negatively to this? Uh, Daniel, what do you think? I think it was long overdue. Um, you know, I personally, um, if I had a choice, I would never wear a mask. And there have been instances where I've walked into a public re- um, restaurant without a mask on, and um, I've taken off my mask um, at times, you know, when I go to like, you know, uh, department run stores and retailers. Um, so for Abbott to remove the mask requirement, I think is a step forward in the right right direction, because when he lifted that mask mandate, um, the COVID-related deaths dropped to zero within the past month, um, two months after the um, the lifting of the mask mandate. I do wish that he could have done it a lot sooner. I think that if um, he would have taken the avenue that Governor Ron DeSantis did in Florida by lifting the mask mandates far sooner and reopening far sooner than everybody else in the country. 
I think that would have been more beneficial for Texas because as, as a state, as Texas, we need to be leading the country in these kinds of areas. And that's exactly why we're seeing, you know, um, former state Senator Don Huffines um, challenge Abbott to a primary where he's running on these issues of, you know, forced mask mandates, um, especially on our kids um, who are being forced to wear them in public schools and being led to believe that the air they breathe is somehow making them sick, which is clearly not true. Another thing that I have against the, the mask mandates is um, how it affects, you know, um, our citizens with special needs. Um, some disabilities are worse than others. And when you force someone um, with a severe disability to wear a mask and, you know, his disability makes him not want to wear one, um, what do you do in that instance? You know, do, do you find do you find them for not wearing a mask? You find them, you know, tens, um, um, you know, thousands of dollars. You know, we've seen thousand dollar fines on children just for not wearing masks. And these kinds of things are borderline unconstitutional. So to cap it all off, I'm all for um, Governor Abbott um, lifting the mask mandates in um, in public areas. Uh, Grace, any comments? Yeah, I agree with Daniel. I'm really excited to not have to wear a mask at school next semester. Although I'm nervous some professors might write me off like either unintentionally or whatever, but no, yeah, I think it's definitely long overdue because I'm a firm believer that in, in that masks really don't do anything unless you're wearing two or three. And also I believe that the pandemic was really over last year and I follow the America's Frontline Doctors pretty closely, and I, I believe them. Um, if you guys go to their website, they have studies that back their claims, like accredited studies for masks, social distancing, and the vaccine. And when you click on the study, they highlight the claim and the evidence, and um, that's hard to argue. But as for how the media has reacted, Obviously, the media that we see is very left-leaning, and so they're not very happy about it, um, especially teachers. But again, the way I see it, I don't understand why these teachers are upset, because if they genuinely believe that masks protect people, then why do they care if some people aren't wearing them? Because you're protecting yourself, so if someone else chooses not to that's their life you know they can do what they please so i'm very happy about it daniel your take on how the media reacted i agree a thousand percent with grace um it is a very very left-leaning media um obviously we remember joe biden um calling um Anderthal thinking. Um, another thing also, um, just recently on Good Morning America, um, Dr. Fauci um, basically admitted to the American public that um, forcing the masks on during the pandemic, during the, the thick of it, was all political theater. And he was exposed, and rightfully so, by Senator Rand Paul in Senate testimony. And so, um, and so I, I've always been of the contention that, you know, wearing masks in public was you know, was all political theater, and the vast majority of Americans were too naive to um, um, 
to not see through this and, and decided to go along in the herd mentality of wearing masks just for the sake of cooperating and working together without realizing that there were political ramifications involved with um, with the mask mandates, um, not so much the um, the um, social distancing or, or, or you know, um, self-isolation whenever um, um, tested positive. Uh, I, I'm on the same boat as, as many people. I think the mask mandate was completely overblown. It was completely blown out of proportion. And um, I'm very glad that I do not have to wear one um, and as Grace does on campus. Um, I'm also very, very much relieved that um, everything's going back to 100% capacity in terms, you know, sporting events and um, and even church services. Um, but that's a uh, that um, issue um, warrants separate treatment. And yes, um, that's um, from Jackson. Your take. Yeah, so um, I kind of um, disagree a little bit with what some said. Well, I think that um, Governor Abbott's order, this was the right time for it. I think that there was a time in the pandemic where masks were helpful because, yes, as Grace, uh, Grace mentioned, there is has been some evidence that masks weren't as effective as some people initially thought. But there are, have been studies that have shown that masks have had a small but real benefit. And I took the um, view that, like, the risk of, like, it was better to reopen and even during like the depths of the pandemic during winter to uh, it was better to like continue life as close to normal as we could, but like just with masks as kind of like uh, a real protection regard. Like we don't know how much to protect us, but protecting us some than to not wear masks and to have like a greater spread. And so then have people claiming to shut down. But I think that time with the mask like it served its purpose um during the pandemic it slowed the spread and now it's time for it to go and people who are cleaning to clean clinging to masks aren't doing so because they think it'll make them safe they're doing so as a kind of um virtue signaling in fact it'd be kind Especially of funny outside and i wouldn't be um surprised if masks stuck around as a purely fashion accessory where you see people like in the way that ties no one gets any benefit from a tie like at all it's completely useless piece of clothing that people still wear because someone aesthetically decided ties are um ties looks good so who knows that masks might be the new ties in some social circles it'd be it'll be interesting to see but um should it have been a mandate or should it have been uh, the choice of the individual um well i mean you you can still wear a mask they just can't require you to like during, I would during go the, to the, the height of the pandemic Oh, during the pandemic. I mean, like, I definitely think that like there were places where it was perfectly fine for the government to mandate masks, for instance, like in government buildings, like the state capitol, for example, or for a government institution like UT to mandate it inside buildings. I definitely think that they did have the um, right to mandate it there. And that knowing what we knew then, it was probably the wise thing to do to have at least some sort of mask date inside. Sterling, your take. Yeah, I think I agree with a lot of Jackson's initial points um, on sort of at the beginning of the pandemic, no one knew exactly the the extent of this virus, the deadliness um, and so on. So I think that masks were very much um, uh, valid during during those initial uh, first months. Um, and I think that politically, Governor Abbott uh, 
release the the mask mandate at the right time. Um, you know, it was after Governor DeSantis and, and Florida and Governor Kemp in Georgia. Um, so I think that politically it was a good idea because he wasn't the trailblazer. You know, he sort of took a more cautious route um, because it's not Abbott that you see being attacked by the media day in, day out. It's DeSantis, right? So DeSantis took the blame and took the initial brunt force of the media attacks while Abbott, you know, sort of snuck in in the back and and removed the mass mandate. Um, so I think that he politically did it uh, very intelligently. Um, and when it comes to the media, man, it is just hilarious looking at, you know, the reports of, Biden talking about Neanderthal, Neanderthal thinking and and two months later, the report of, you know, zero deaths in Texas. Uh, I think that that is just hilarious and it shows um, just how misguided uh, and, and unopen our media is to to different approaches and different ideas. Um, so I think Jackson made some really good points and, and Dan, you made some good points as well. Daniel, any disagreements? Grace, any comments, disagreements? No, I see. I see what you guys are saying. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, recently, uh, there's a report of UT students doing a commencement walkout um, over the Eyes of Texas song um, being played at graduation, and. Um, uh, what do you guys think of it? Uh, should they, is that, is that, are they justified in doing that? Um, should they be allowed to do that? Um, Daniel, what's your take? Oh, this is absolute pettiness. Um, that th this is an absolute cop out on, um, on the university and its traditions and everything it has stood for since it's founding in 1883. Um, after, um, the, the eyes of Texas was accused of being a racist song, not that it ever was. Um, everybody jumped on the cancel culture bandwagon and called for its removal from um, from stadiums as part of the pregame and postgame traditions and ceremonies um, at our home games in Austin. And I immediately um, aired, um, I immediately sided with Sterling in his in, in his um, article on the Texas Horn. It said, you know, the the alma mater is going to stay. And I even went on the record in my own um, letter to the student athletes and the university administration until Gabriel blows his horn, which is also published on the Horn. I went on record of saying a lot of the people who are calling for the removal of the eyes of Texas or replacing it with some other song are largely the same ones who were proudly singing it in unity with all the fans in the games up to that point a year ago. And so you cannot believe the utter hypocrisy of the very people who play for the Texas Longhorns, play for the Longhorn on the side of the helmets, on the jerseys, for, uh, for the brand, for the state. I even went um, as far as to um, say, well, what does this mean then for other um, institutions that use the eyes of Texas as a talking point? You know, the Texas um, Department of Public Safety posts signs with the silhouette of a Texas Ranger that says the eyes of Texas are upon you. You know, make sure you're you're at the speed, driving at speed limit and fastening your seatbelts. 
Even Texas A&M University, little brother down there in College Station, Texas, they mentioned the song in their fight song, The Aggie War Hymn, and I'm going to quote that um, fight song verbatim. The eyes of Texas are upon you. That is the song they sing so well, which is ref- which is followed by the sounds like hell yell that they do as a tradition. Does that mean then if we cancel The Eyes of Texas, they cancel that stanza of the song? You know, because does that mean that we have to cancel? We we have to get rid of the exhibit of the of the um, of the um, of the bathroom paper on which the Eyes of Texas was first written, which is at um, um, on display at the Edder Harbin Alumni Center. Does it mean that the um, the repertoire, the entire repertoire of the University of Texas Longhorn Band has to change because the vast majority of their songs include variations of the Eyes of Texas, including the fight song Texas Fight. So um, you have to you have to wrap your head around the long term ramifications of what it means to remove a song with so many years of tradition, which had united so many Longhorns like myself, young and old, first gen or lifelong, and now. Now, all of a sudden, it's become overnight this heated point of contention, a political statement of sorts that needs to be vilified and and, and all these other things. I could go on, but I'd rather um, hear everyone else's take on this. Grace, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Daniel. I love how passionate you're getting, Daniel. Um, yeah, it's going back to the masks and everything. One minute they don't work and now they do what and one minute the eyes of texas isn't racist and now it is it just there is a disconnect it does not make sense and again i think there's just such a culture of hate right now and we need a more we need a culture of forgiveness and everyone i i know people say the eyes of texas are upon you was said by robert e lee which ha- has not been confirmed correct yeah yeah um I don't know. I just think this is another example. We need to turn away from hate and move more towards forgiveness. Right. Sterling Jackson, any comments? Yeah. um, Grace, I think that's, that's some really good points. I think that we're in an environment where canceling things and, and going against tradition and, 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 really just canceling things to cancel things um, is really detrimental and really destroying some of the fundamental things that one make us longhorns. Um, and as someone who read the entire report um, and, and, you know, How many pages I, I, were there? Huh? How many pages were there? Oh my God. 60 something. I think <laughs> it was long. It was long, but as someone who read the entire report, as someone who's a third generation longhorn and as someone who, has marched and played the Eyes of Texas and the Longhorn Band, uh, the accusation that it is a racist song is simply unfounded, okay? The, uh, the Eyes of Texas have been, have been used more to, for the betterment of civil rights than it has in any instance where it has been used in a racist context. The only really somewhat racist contents that it was used was in its initial debut, but even that wasn't racist. There was no one during that initial debut that was wearing blackface um, that was even associated, you know, with, with the show. The only reason why that the song was performed at that track fundraiser in 1903, I believe, um, was because the president was there. Uh, previously they had planned to do it at another event on campus, but uh, at, at, 
the president had to reschedule. He went to this this uh, track fundraiser event that was off campus, and so they performed it there. There was nothing racist about its initial intent, uh, and, and and I think that the argument that it is. Um, it just simply doesn't have enough evidence to it um, because the idea that the eyes of Texas are upon you was taken from Robert E. Lee's, the, the, the eyes of the South are upon you. Um, there's not solid documentary evidence of that. And as someone majoring history, that's pretty essential. You need to have evidence and primary sources to, uh, to ensure that, you know, you have a paper trail. Um, and when I go about, when, when I talked about it being used more for civil rights, it was used by suffragists in the 1910s. Um, it was used by uh, civil, rights, civil rights activists in the 1940s um, for increased rights for African-Americans in, in Austin. Uh, it was used by Mexican laborers who, who marched down from uh, uh, the valley and up to Austin in the 1960s. They sang it all the way up. Uh, because this is a song that ensures that its main message is that the people of Texas, your descendants, your fellow Texans, they are expecting something from you. They have invested in you. You are going to this university uh, and you should be grateful for that. And I think that that is something that a lot of students don't see, that they simply take the education that they are getting for granted and the experiences that they're getting for granted rather than appreciating the traditions that come that have come before them, the individuals that have come before them that force this university and force the traditions that make it so great. Um, so I think that the idea that this is a racist song, racist song is unfounded and you know the Eyes of Texas committee uh, agrees with me on that. Um, and I think that having this dialogue though is is important. Um, and to, to make sure that people understand the facts and actually appreciate what they've been given and appreciate what has come before. Daniel? Again, um, I, I really appreciate hearing what Sterling had to say, you know, him being a third generation Longhorn and being a member of the Longhorn Band. Uh, it really provides some really great insight into the eyes of Texas and um, as a history major, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm a history buff myself at heart. So history was always my favorite subject in school. And, and I guess it's why I love college football, but that's neither here nor there. That's besides the point. But anyway, uh, I, speaking of history, I do want to um, expand on what Sterling has elaborated on when he said, you know, General Robert E. Lee said the eyes of the South are upon you, which then became because you got to remember Prather, President Prather was a student at Washington Lee University back when it was still known as George Washington College out in Lexington, Virginia. Um, he then expanded on it and said, the eyes of Texas are upon you. We close it down on speeches. Um, another a variation of that phrase was used by, you ready for this? General Dwight D. Eisenhower in the days leading up to the D-Day invasion, where he told um, his troops that this following quote right here, I don't know if you can see it, but it says that the eyes of the world are upon you. The Allied troops, as they were getting ready to execute Operation Overlord, a D-Day invasion on June 6, 1944. And another incident where, where the phrase, the eyes of Texas are upon you, was, was used by the UT student body president back in 1999 as a way of offering condolences to the families and friends of the 12 victims of the Aggie bonfire collapse. Uh, when um, he said tonight, um, 
A&M, Aggies, Aggieland, the eyes of Texas are upon you and they look upon you with sadness and um, and sorrow that um, they've got, they had to go through that tragedy. So back to my point, it is a point, that phrase has always been a point of unity. That's always been the common denominator throughout history as Sterling elaborated on. And so therefore, um, as for me, I will continue to sing that song as loudly and proudly as I possibly can every time it is played at official athletic and university events. Um, I expect the coaches to relay that same message to their student athletes on their programs. I expect the athletic director and the administration to um, let that continue to be practiced because the more you allow people to choose whether or not they want to sing it, the more future generation of Longhorns will not sing it and will not care to sing it which puts them at, in, in real jeopardy, the traditions that have been in place here at the University of Texas that have defined this university for such a long time and that have attracted people like myself who had pretty, no prior connection to the university up until my admission to want to come to the University of Texas and be a Longhorn. Any other comments? Um, one last thing I wanted to say is having to do with the band. Um, I don't know if you all heard, but the the band is being split into two next semester. Um, and one band is going to be allowed to not play the Eyes of Texas, and the other will be playing the Eyes of Texas. And as a, as a former Longhorn band member, I'm just honestly just disgusted um, and, you know, there's a reason why, uh, director Hannah retired this last semester, um, probably because he doesn't want to deal with the drama and the chaos that is going to ensue next semester when half the band is not playing, uh, the eyes of Texas. Um, granted it's, it's, it's the player's individual choice, um, to not play. Um, but I think that it's simply built on, on ignorance um, and an idea that, you know, they are once again, canceling for the sake of canceling. Um, I think that if people actually read the report and actually had conversations about this, like we are having now, I think that they'll come to find that the, the racist narrative that is, that is being thrown onto our university is, is just unfounded. Yeah, and let's hope that it never does get canceled. So um, thank you for joining us, guys. Um, this has been the third episode of our podcast, the Texas Horn Podcast. Um, this is an editor's episode. This is um, our editing team. And go check out um, our website at thetexashorn.com and um, check out our Twitter page at horn underscore Texas, our Facebook page at the Texas Horn UT and our Instagram page at the underscore Texas underscore horn and um, our Spotify page, the Texas horn podcast. And one more plug, our uh, YouTube page, um, which is just the Texas horn where this, uh, where this zoom meeting will be posted. So um, thanks guys. And we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.